Welcome to another episode of the exciting Science of Feeding the World podcast. Um, in this episode, we speak with Laura James, who is a PhD student at Rothamsted Research about bees and everything about bees. We've talked about how pesticides affect bees. And we talked about how bees are better than flies. Oh, that must have been really hard for you to I'm say, Alex. Gritting the teeth. <laughs> bees are really cool, though, and we touch on all of the bee myths, too. Everything. Yep. everything. Enjoy. Enjoy. Enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. Hello, welcome to the science of feeding the world. This week we are joined by bumblebee enthusiast, expert, bee buff, it's Laura James. Hello. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention I'm also joined by... <laughs> I who I am. I'm Alex Dye, and I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Gary. And we're joined by Laura James. Right, to the question. <laughs> Back on track. This is good. This is brilliant really podcasting. That one Fix that in post. It's been a little while. We'll get better at these one day, I'm sure. We'll yeah. get better. And someday we'll have an actual podcast ready. Uh, so, Laura, <laughs> what's up with bees? What's the deal with bees? Like, what's your favourite one? Do you have a favourite? Do you name them? What's your favourite name to call a bee? I very much started off naming them. Obviously, you have to name them with the letter B. So my first three Bs I ever owned were Bertha, Betty, and Beth. You quickly realise... Hang on. So this is a perfect time for a good first question. Good Are first question. all Bs female? Because those were all... All female names, though. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't really fit into the... Technically. Yeah. Are they? All Bs are not female, but all the Bs that you probably see in your day-to-day life are female. So all foraging Bs are female. And that applies so we're going to go into foraging bees foraging in a moment. Bees, mm. yeah. Carry on about so that. So by, by that you mean if you see one on a plant, most collecting female. Yes. Yeah. So anything that is doing a job is a female because the males of all bees are notoriously lazy. Stop! You're looking right at these, me when you say uh, this. Sorry, uh, these are the drones, right? Is that what they're? Yes. Yeah? So drones are just produced as sperm banks, which feels a bit early on in the podcast for <laughs> using the word sperm. Straight off out the gate but with that. It's true. Um, yeah. So in the bee world, they're a very much a matriarchal society and they vary in the level to which they have a society and in their socialness. Um, but yeah. Males, so you're going to. I'm going to tell you about that. Break this down. So you're talking down. about different kinds of bee. So yes. do you want to talk about the different kinds? So there's, I, because you know, I, I get honey Shall for we the start? bee and I know a bumblebee, but, but tell it's, me more. Okay, yes. Let's start with bee myths. So I would say you've just number one said the biggest myth about bees, they produce honey. So it's not a lie that a bee in the UK produces honey. So in the UK, we've got, probably you wouldn't know that we had two about 250 species of bees. Ish, probably give or take. Alex is agreeing, give or take. <laughs> I'm approximating. It's about 250. Only one of those is the honeybee, which produces honey. Apis mellifera. Apis mellifera. There's a native one, mellifera mellifera, the black There is the black bee, bee. Which we don't we don't get honey from. You're right, that But that reintro- has been reintroduced. Reintroduced, yes. Very true. But Apis mellifera sensu stricto, if Very you want. Very true. The uh, Asian honeybee is the one that's kind of like our livestock wow. yes. honeybee. So there's only one that we farm for honey. I would say mm-hmm. you're quite right because the black so if, bee. If is I was to go very, to a very... beekeeper, we're talking one species. Yes, of bumble- uh, one, one species. species of honeybee. Yeah. Yes, and the black bee is um, currently a conservation effort. Would it's we true. call it? So yes, capable of producing honey. Very true, but not currently used for honey production. 
because we need to look after a pet. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so worldwide, we've got like 25,000 bee species. And most people, as you say, if Whoa. you ask them, I know, 25,000. Um, if you ask most people, I think most people quite rightly would be like, I know what honeybee is. I know what a bumblebee is. Most people know the big black fuzzy thing flying around their garden is a bumblebee probably. But there are 20, well, technically 24, we say, species of bumblebee in the UK. One has been partially reintroduced. What makes a bumblebee a bumblebee? They bumble about the place. Um, so <laughs> technically, well, it's it's a different group, but we, we kind of class bees on their sociality is another thing that I think most people don't know. So out of those 250 most of those are what we call solitary bees, which means they live um, solitary lives. So they don't do any form of communal brood care. They don't do any communal resource collection, generally speaking. Um, and the other, so we then classify honeybees and bumblebees as social bees. So they're bees that work together in kind of these large hive communities, um, mm. but to different scales. So I like to think that bumblebees are the kind of toddlers of the bee world because they are primitively social, whereas honeybees are truly eusocial. So they're really working together for a common cause, wow. whereas bumblebees are often tolerating each other for a common <laughs> cause, I believe. <laughs> um, but yeah, the only thing I would say that basically all bees have is six legs, four wings and five eyes. Laura, what is your PhD actually on then? So I look at the molecular impacts of chronic pesticide exposure on bumblebee learning and memory. So chronic, you, can we flag out the word chronic? Then, I was going to say, can yeah, we yeah, yeah. Can yeah, yeah. say that again yeah, in normal that's, person uh, words? Long. So what I do is I look at what happens when a bee is exposed to some form of chemical over more than one feeding event or more than one exposure. Right. So more than one time that it's accidentally got flicked with something or come into contact so, with it. Yeah. It's so, a word to come up a lot, so acute and chronic. Yes. So acute is opposite. one time. Yeah. So that's if you sprayed a pesticide on a bee, topically, yeah. topically just Sorry. means on their back, on some part of them. So it's just contacting Fly killer. them. Mm. Yeah. If you got a can and you sprayed a bee in. Exactly. That would so be acute. One touch, one time. So it literally means one time. Chronic means anything more than one, but we tend to try and think about it in terms of something that would happen out in the field. Yeah. So if a bee is feeding on a food resource that's got this chemical in it all the time, they're they going to be go getting that. Day after day. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or even, not necessarily even day after day, people count chronic as I've eaten it five times today. Right. You know, uh, anything yeah. that's more than one feeding or mm -hmm. exposure to it. Um, and that's what is most likely to be a field realistic scenario we like mm -hmm. to think. Um, and what I wanted to do was really look at these things called sublethal effects, which traditionally isn't really looked at. We like to look at... So what do you, what do you, what do you call a sublethal effect? So a sublethal effect is something that doesn't outright kill it. Um, and traditionally, when we look at pesticides, we would test it on an organism and go, it's not dead, it's fine. And that's very, very much not the case. And we're starting to look at that more. So a sublethal effect could be something that affects your ability to remember something, your ability to get home. If you can't get home, you're going to die of exposure. <laughs> you specifically are going to die of exposure. Um, and anything can, like that. I'm, I'm thinking about me getting <laughs> drunk you should, at this yeah. point. <laughs> if you can't get back to bed and you've got no food or hydration or protection from the wind and rain. Yeah. <laughs> so it's anything that would affect... Uh, 
a B in this case in anything. It could be really minor and it's things that would traditionally be overlooked because you might think, oh, that B is a bit, you know, walking in circles. Why does mm-hmm. that matter? They're not dead. They're mm-hmm. fine. But it's things that really like affect their whole life, either in the hive or in solitary bees. If that one bee is affected and can't get back to provide for a solitary bee, that's much, much more of an, an effect impact. than if you're one of those and- 80,000. On the drunk metaphor, you kind mm. of, you know, you wonder how I'm drunk. You can't find it, can't get home that night. You sleep in a bush. You find in the morning, you wonder how are subleth- are these sublethal effects as temporary in the same way, or do we think that they are can massively vary? I think um, so. Bees have really good immune systems. They have these things called P450s, which are like bee mm-hmm. immune system. And this is a protein. Yes, so they're immune system proteins, um, and what they can do is that that's what they metabolize compounds with. So mm. this in the wild, if it was something toxic in a plant they have this ability to detoxify so the p450 p450 this is it breaks so, down hmm. something that's the general hmm. notion yeah it's, it's it's the b version of immune system if somebody wants is listening to this and wants an explanation in the episode with dana mcgregor we talked mm-hmm. about the metabolism and breaking down of alcohol yeah. in the human body didn't we yeah, so, we did. yeah so yeah so it's this their is like, version, it's their version, their version of, of the, getting great. over their hangover so the the thing there's debate about is whether do these sublethal effects last forever? I think perhaps it's not that the effect per se would last forever. Say you get a bee hangover. Mm. If you have the opportunity to sleep that off, Mm -hmm. maybe you'll be okay. But the more the fact is that the things that that causes means you can't get back to the hive, you can't do your normal Mm. job, you're more susceptible to predation, you're more expectable (laughs) to uh, being able to not control your temperature, for example. Mm. So they're all things that might seem fairly minor, but when you're looking at even 10% of a bee population maybe has some of those effects, then you start to see how that could really affect a mm. larger population. If that hive, if all the foragers in a honeybee hive are exposed to it, if you think only the oldest, wisest foragers are the ones out there, if you're knocking those all off, mm. no one's coming back. And if you're not, that there's no bees old enough to take that place. I mean, usually there would be, but it's, it's kind of very much to do with the society mm-hmm. that they're involved in as well so how would a bee get exposed or how would a bee touch some kind of toxic chemical yeah so naturally outside of pesticides like we say it'd be like toxins in plants or perhaps they eat something that's got some form of toxin in but more the context i'm looking at is pesticides and the way this would occur is um what i focus on is these pesticides called neonicotinoids which are a relatively new class of uh pesticide and The good thing about them is that they're really specific. So we've got to say that the good thing about pesticides is that they prevent disease. Mm. They stop pests. They stop pests passing on disease to crops. They enable us to have a higher yield than we'd ever perhaps be able to achieve without them. Um, But the bad thing is that they have these non-target effects because it's very hard to say, I want to kill this specific insect and not kill all other insects. So they target this things called um, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Oh, say that again three times quickly, please. Nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. I practiced it hard. Um, NACHRs. That's what we call them. Um, and they're actually really good because insects have loads of these and mammals have 20 times less. So the good- But these are the same receptors we have that yes. give us the hit when you're smoking tobacco. Nicotine. I think nicotinic receptors, yeah, in general. But this, yeah. yeah. So it's exactly the same thing, but these are specifically involved in like synapse transmission of acetylcholine. Yeah. Uh, I'm not lost, but 
so you look at uh, neonicotinoid yep. pesticides, which are a specific class that target this specific receptor in this the brain. And, mm-hmm. But more than that, I don't need to care. No, it's you need to care because it's good because insects have so many more than us. So it means that they're never going to be toxic to mammals realistically ever in the wild. It's one of the big steps with neonics, as I understand. Yes. So pesticides that we used before, like pyrethroids, were also toxic to humans. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, whereas, and the big thing about neonics was that they were more specific yeah. to a, a smaller class of yes. living things. So we're increasingly getting more specific, more specific and cleverer in our pesticide design, like previous ones, like as you say, pyrethroids, yeah. carbamates, organophosphates, yeah, yeah. like poisoned anything yeah. it touched so they're really specific but that means that you they're specific to insects but you can't really tease out that difference between insects because it's a chemistry at the end of the day it's mm-hmm. acting on one thing um but again they're really good because they're systemic which means they're good for pest control because when you apply them they're absorbed into the plant and they're expressed in every part of that plant's tissues so basically you put one treatment of these neonicotinoid onto a seed yes it gets incorporated into the plant so that when an aphid comes along and has a nibble or when a beetle comes along and have a nibble you're they killing die. it the plant mm. itself becomes so systemic yes. was originally seen to be a really good thing yes and if, when it first was invented well it's right? per se is yeah. a really good idea because you're not in theory you're getting no non-target insects mm-hmm. being affected because it's only things that eat that plant and they're the things you wish to kill and it's it's in the plant you don't have to drive your tractor around exactly. emitting fumes in yeah there. you cut down on carbon well you can things. also do them in sprays so that yeah. would still be okay. that but their sprays the the idea was that they'd be these seed coats so yeah. the plant grows with it and incorporates it into it, into it yeah. but that is also the bad thing about neonics is that that's how bees become exposed to them is through mm. the pollen and nectar of these then treated crops because we it's kind of an, a small oversight, I guess, that the other thing that is visiting a crop and interacting with it is a pollinator. Mm. So it's if a pest. A beneficial a thing. Yeah. Yes. Mm. If it's got flowers. Yes. So the only thing, the only way that a bee would interact with these chemicals is if it was directly sprayed onto a bee during mm-hmm. one of those sprays. But there are measures in place that basically prevent that occurring now um, Now that there's been lots of research that shows there is potential effects that you would not spray at a time of flowering because therefore you would avoid direct contact. Mm. Um, and so the only remaining way that realistically they're probably coming into contact um, is through the pollen nectar of a treated plant. But it's important to say that that's only in the, the EU and the UK. So there are still plenty of places in the world where I'm sure neonics are sprayed on flowering plants mm. at all points of the day and very, very regularly. So it's still a problem, even if it's not a problem in our kind of mm. farming mm. and agriculture. Where does your research come in then? So what I'm doing is trying to simulate these kind of scenarios in the lab but to really make them as realistic as possible because we all know that an insecticide will kill an insect at some level and that's not really news to anyone what we want to know is at a field realistic level in a field realistic way would a bee ever get enough of any of these chemicals for it to be negatively affected and if they are what other sort of effects we're having because it's very very unlikely that in the field a bee would be exposed to anything that's lethal any lethal level because um in these seed coats it's such a low amount but lots of studies have shown sublethal effects mm-hmm. at these really really low amounts so what we're trying to do is create situate so i'm designing kind of behavioral trials and tests i, I wanted to ask you for about bees. This. so yeah it's easy to measure 
lethal effect, right? Yes. The bee's dead or it's, it's not dead, dead right? Um, yeah. is, is that easy to tell? If a bee... <laughs> Fairly. Um, <laughs> you say that, if you're working on some beetles, they have been known really? to play dead. Oh, really? Okay. You have to be really... It's, a, it's an important question. It yeah, might seem no. tongue-in-cheek. Bees uh, say it how it is. Yeah. So how do you measure or design an experiment to measure sublethal effects? Yes, yeah, so it's obviously a lot trickier. It's the problem than yeah. going it's dead or not. Um, so we try and look at different elements of behavior that might affect like a bee's day-to-day -day life. So a key one is their navigation, their ability to learn, um, specifically their ability to do things like learn um, visual cues, like patterns or colors, because that's really, really relevant to a bee's life. They need to be able to learn the colors of rewarding flowers, know that this species is rewarding, that one's not. What do you mean by rewarding flowers? So got nectar in it. So the amount of nectar, like you said earlier, that nectar can vary throughout the day. So it can vary simply the flower is producing different amounts throughout the day. It can vary in terms of who has been there before that one bee and whether it's depleted or not. Uh, all sorts of things like that it can vary in its sugar content. Some species will produce more nectar than others. So it's really important for a bee to be able to learn cues associated with those rewards so that they know, uh, I know that that purple flower over there produces more nectar than that blue flower over there. That's very and simplifying. And then from it, that bee's perspective, it's uh, about efficiency. So you could visit mm -hmm. one flower that was better and not have to visit five. Yeah, there's flowers. lots of research on like patch visitation and whether you visit, as you say, lots in one area mm. that are low rewarding. Is it better to do that than to travel further to higher rewarding, things like that? And bees have been shown to be, they're basically miraculous learners. They're really, really clever at learning these associations. So we can kind of take advantage of that to see what happens to those associations and those abilities when we test them with pesticides. Mm. So on this note, so I've, I've come to visit your little room that you work in. <laughs> the bee dungeon. Box, <laughs> box, and you've got a little... I don't know how to describe it. It looks like one of your experiments that you do is like it's a tube, right? And it it's is. got a heated floor uh -huh. that looks like a, some sort of dance mat or a disco floor. And some of those are warm and some of them are not warm. Yes. Hmm. So I believe Gary referred to it as Beatron, didn't you? Yeah. It's a bit like Beatron. Yeah, we made a video about this. So we, we put did. a link so that people can see yes. what it looks like. <gasps> Yeah. Do we get to say, you know, look in the... Look in the uh, look in credits the link, for the yeah. link. Yeah, what is it they say on YouTube? <laughs> link, link in bio. Link in bio. <laughs> Am I your first link in bio? No. Oh. Well, um, yeah, so it's basically quite cool. It looks like Tron because it's lit with LED lights all around the top because bees... Um, they can see this. They have this thing called a bee flicker fusion frequency. That's a <laughs> bee, I bee can't say that three times. Fusion bee frequency. flicker fusion frequency, where they're affected much more by fluorescent lighting than we are. And it can, because they use polar light and their ocelli are very important for tracking light. I love the way every time I you say ocelli. <laughs> you tap yourself on the head. The head, just knees and toes, ocelli. Yes. Um, so they're very sensitive to light and that could um, bias their direction and their navigation. So we use LEDs because they're they don't flicker. So it's a continual source of light, but it makes it look very cool. Um, and what it is, it's a tube with lots of patterns around the outside. And we want the bees to be able to use the patterns and their ability to visually learn really well to find, as Alex said, cool reward zones in a hot environment. So this is on the floor. So the floor's a grid. It's a bit right? like the floor, the floor is lava. lava. Yeah. yeah. But the yeah. floor is hot <laughs> and there's a cold bit. You've got to find it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Base, it's base, what you were just saying. Yeah, mm. basically the floor is lava. Um, and so they, they're very, very good bees at sensing areas of temperature. Like we said earlier with the water, um, they're so good at controlling their hive temperature. It's a very natural thing for them to be able to do to sense temperature and respond to it. So we're kind of playing on that natural ability to do that. 
and they have they can sense temperature with their little feetsies. So we do it in a walking assay. So they're walking across a floor that's heated. Um, they can't see where the cool reward zone is. It looks the same as the hot tiles, but when they come across it, they should be able to feel its ambient temperature is different, which they definitely can. We can see that. Uh, and then they should learn where it is over a series of trials and be able to come back to it really easily. And you can see that when you kind mm. of map. And when you, say, when you say learn where it is, you mean by the patterns on the walls. Yes. So there's a star on one panel, there are yes. lines on the other, and they'll go, if I walk in the direction of the stars. Star turn left. Uh, star turn left. <laughs> I'll, I'll find the cool patch. That's the kind of theory is that, so the patterns are set up into like quadrants. Mm. So each quadrant has a different pattern. So as you say, some are horizontal lines, some are stars, some are circles. And they should be able to use those as visual cues, like landscape and they can. cues. You've, yeah. Yeah. So you can see in experiments that someone once rolled a pattern under So a bee were refusing to fly. If you put a bee just in a wind tunnel, it's like, why am I here? If you roll a pattern under the bee, they'll take flight because they think no it's a landscape moving below them. So That's it's really, crazy. really cool. So obviously that bee doesn't go, there's a star. I'm going towards that. But they're very good at when they do their navigation, they pick out things on the horizon to use as kind of continuals mm, in like relation to trees the sun. Or- yes. Mm. So to a bee, my figure was that stripe looks like a tree on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's the same sort of thing. And they're, they're very obviously like black and white blocked should be a very easy, perceptible task. In theory, yes. Yeah, but you've actually got this to work. Mm. Yeah, it's very effective. And no one's really looked at, so that's why I say heat's really an effective training tool because what I'm effectively doing is trying to train a bee and to find the best way to train a bee so that I can then look at the effect of pesticides on my ability to train a bee. Mm. <laughs> um, but no one really uses what I, what we call aversive stimuli, which is the carrot and the stick approach, Hannah. It's the stick. Ooh, carrots. So you love carrots. So bees love sugar like you love carrots. I don't love, love carrots. carrots. <laughs> okay, bees love sugar more than you love carrots. But sugar is what's traditionally used to train a bee because bees will do anything for sugar. Whereas I'm trying to do the opposite approach of going, how can we use aversive kind of negative stimuli? You're being very delicate about being punishment learning. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the hot floor them, in yeah. this situation, right? And it's um, not but we so sh- hot. Yeah, it's painful. It's um, so originally. It's underfloor heating. It's turned basically up. I'm too warm. It's too stuffy in here. Let me get of. out. No one, of, no one has been too warm. Yeah. Hot baths are the worst. But yeah, originally we used about 30 degrees as our hot, and I was like, this will motivate them. Bees blooming love about 33 degrees is their ideal hive temperature. So they were just chilling, doing <laughs> nothing. Sat on some nice underfloor heating. They were like, cheers, I'm nice and toasty. So now it's 44 <laughs> degrees, which to us might seem quite hot, but mm. that, that's only about yeah 10 degrees hotter than absolutely ideal. So it motivates mm. them just enough to find that cool reward zone. So we've discussed the, or do you want, are there any more questions about the aversive learning? I was going to make a pun, but it's, I think- No, please, make please do. No, 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 no. We can edit it in. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) It's time for the rapid fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. Can I say before I do this segment, these are not the questions that I had set earlier. This one, you'll know which one it is when we get to it. Oh, great. I haven't seen these yet, so I don't know. Can't wait. Rapid fire question round. You have to say it slightly slower so I hear it. (laughs) Chocolate or ice cream? Chocolate. Morning or evening? Evening. Bombus terrestris or Bombus lapidarius? That's the buff-tailed bumblebee or the red-tailed bumblebee for our uh, 
normal people. Normal entomologists. Yeah. Normal people. Terrestrious, because that's what I work on. Classic. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Oh, dogs, controversially, mm. to my cat. Mm-mm. Bees or other bee-mimicking insects? Or oh, controversially, other bee-mimicking insects. They're fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> What's a bit? I'll, I'll come back to that. Yeah, we, we can. can. We'll, we'll come back to that. Batman or Spider-Man? Batman. Got wings. It's controversial. Batman hasn't got wings. He's got fake wings. Oh, He's got God. a cape. Depends what iteration, really. I mean... Oh, uh, oh, oh, not, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not really rapid, guys. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Tea. Oh, no, that's a lie. <laughs> coffee. This is, a mess. this is a mess. We haven't even got to the difficult you can do question it yet. Uh, aversive or appetitive conditioning? Aversive. Very nice. Green or blue? Blue. Favourite Studio Ghibli film? Oh, Totoro. My neighbour Totoro. Oh, that's a good choice. We talked about this earlier. <clears throat> <laughs> R alpha cyano 3 phenoxybenzyl 1S cis 3 uh, open brackets Z2 chloro 333 trifluoropropanyl 22 dimethyl and SA cyano 3 phenobenzyl 1R cis 3 open brackets Z2 chloro 333 trifluoropropanyl 22 dimethyl or 22 dimethyl 3 2 methylpropyl 1 enyl cyclopropane 1 carboxylic acid can we just well done Alex I prefer coffee <laughs> <laughs> lambocyhalothrin or pyrethroids uh, or controversial pyrethroids are kind of the devil but so is lambdocyhalothrin that's also controversial that was the question that you just got mm. asked oh because obviously you, you knew that you just didn't want to show off in front of yeah Alex. I mean <laughs> I'm big on my chemical names me um, I can't believe you've done that to me <laughs> Bravo, live on though, recording Bravo. that might not be the exact ones I was I was trying to do it from memory it's, it's tough <laughs> Last well, question. This is my favourite one to ask every mm, time. I like this okay. one. What was the last film that made you cry? Oh, every film makes me cry. We get that a lot, don't we? Oh, Little yeah. Women. I saw Little Women recently. It made me feel inspired. Jerry <laughs> <laughs> says this. Hannah says that. What does that make say? I've really been enjoying this chat, but I think we should move on to the next session now. Thanks. What's a bee mimicking insect? More I was just looking at bee this morning. Bee, I mean, yeah, so bee fly. So, they're, that, a, they're a soldier I mean, fly. They're yeah. a soldier fly and ally. Oh, I get the, the, the clues in the name. Yes. But, um, so you get what? actual bees that mimic other bees, if that makes sense. You get cuckoo bees that aren't bumblebees, but pretend to be so that they can lay their own eggs in the nest of bumblebees. Ah, much like the cuckoo bird. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. Hence the name. Um, they're we, really difficult. Well, they're not difficult to tell apart. Yeah. They're, 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 they're difficult to tell because apart. Because the actual bumblebees in the worker bumblebees can't tell that their queen has been usurped, killed and replaced and laid her own eggs. It's mental. Um, but traditionally, bee mimicking insects are things that would look like a bee. I am presuming to make it seem to a predator that they are more dangerous or have a sting. In th- yeah, this is the theory. So it's, I think it's called Batesian, Batesian mimicry, mimicry, which yeah. is basically looking like something more dangerous than yeah. you actually are. Like if you're a snake, you deliberately look like a snake yeah. that has worse, more dangerous venom if you've got the coloration of the same of them or you mimic their coloration. So you get all sorts of things, though. You get beetles, you get hover- mm-hmm. lots of hoverfly bee mimics. Yeah, and um, the wasps, wasps and bees wasps, are big ones to copy. Yeah. Difficult the sort to of, um, tell. Yellow and black striped mm-hmm. things. So lots of things mimic that yellow and black coloration, which ironically mm. a lot of bees don't have. Yeah. Most bees aren't yellow and black. Mm. <laughs> black and red, brown, some of them. 
Fresh, well, ginger, brownish. ginger, just brownish, yeah. blackish, yeah. But there's lots. Yeah, there's lots of insects. The, my favourite one, and this is appropriate time of year to talk about this, is the bee fly, as Hannah mentioned yes. earlier. Thank you very much for teeing me up for that one. <laughs> I think we'll edit that out, but I can shout bee fly again if you'd like. Oh, bee flies! Bee flies? Who said bee flies? <laughs> Let me talk to you a bit about bee flies. Every year we have a competition to uh, look out for bee flies. They're a little brown. They look like a little pom-pom, tiny little brown pom-pom. They've got a very long proboscis, which mm-hmm. is like a, a nose, like a long mouth part. Looks like a, They look kind of like a little fluffy mosquito. They and do. Got these big, They're quite cute. Long, thin wings with a dark As band across them, or black spots for different species. And you can see them hovering around. Uh, but as cool and as fun as they are, the little little pollinators, they're quite cool. They are a little bit grim because what the females do is they, they find a nest of like a, a burrowing bee, like a solitary bee mm-hmm. Laura was talking about earlier. And then they'll, they'll go and find some dust and they'll sort of wiggle their bum in the dust to gather it all up. <laughs> and then they coat their eggs in this dust to give them a bit of weight. And then they'll hover just outside the bee's nest and they'll just flick the egg in. Because it's weighted, it'll go straight down to the bottom. Ah. The larvae hatch out uh, and they'll feed on the food. So they'll steal the food of the um, bee's larvae and then they'll eat the larvae, the larvae. of the bee mm. and sort of emerge as this adult bee fly. So they're sort of... Uh, Cuckoos in their own right. What do they call them? Mm. Cryptoparasitoids. Yeah. Clipto, mm. clipto, what is it? Klepto. Yeah. Kleptoparasites. Okay. So mm. you're developing sublethal, a, t- a test to d- figure out whether um, these sublethal effects are happening. Um, I guess if, if that's successful, then are, are you hoping then that we can start to use these in regulatory testing? Are they? Do we already test? You know, when we're testing new pesticides, are sublethal effects taken into account at the moment, or is it just lethal, lethality? Uh, Traditionally, always been lethal to develop these things called LD10s and LD50s, which are percentage of the concentration of pesticide at which 10% or 50% of your population die, um, which obviously is not ideal anyway. Um, But yeah, sublethal testing, it's not not really been a thing till really quite recently. Mm. I say in the time I've been doing my PhD, like the last five years, there's been Mm. so much more interest in it. Um, I know that big um, agrochemical companies are definitely starting to look at it and they're definitely doing it from their end as well. That's an important thing to say is they are looking at these things. Um, But there's still so much unknown about it that, as you say, we don't have good testing mechanisms for it in place. Um, We have some, but there's so many different sublethal effects and they all affect different bee species differently and different pesticides can affect different bee species differently. The same pesticide may affect a honeybee, but not a bumblebee. Mm. And you think about all those solitary bees that are basically not studied at all. So most research is done on honeybees and there's beginning to be lots more sublethal effects looked at in them. Bumblebees that I work on still very understudied and mm. yeah solitary mm. bees like literally nothing um so i think it's important that we do try and build them up as tools that anyone can set up in a lab and that's why we are trying to do it in the lab and not just in the field because if this is going to be a useful toxicology testing platform you can't expect someone to test every single pesticide um on as a toxicologist in out in the field it's, yeah. um so it's trying to make it as realistic as possible these tools in the lab so mm. this is like standardizing what you do so that you could then use this as a yeah way of screening a whole series. So Laura, tell me, have you ever tested be the impacts of pesticides on bumblebee memory and learning? Yes. 
So I've started um, looking at neonicotinoids because that was the whole design of this project was to look at neonics because they're this new group and quite controversial. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to look at other pesticides. As we said, the ones that came before, like the pyrethroids, if pyrethroids are much worse, and that's why we no longer use them and have, well, we should be no longer <laughs> using them and have moved towards smarter chemistries, then if we start completely banning all neonicotinoids or all new groups, then we do risk that if we're not testing in comparison to these other chemistries that we go, neonics are bad, uh, we shouldn't use them. And instead, farmers have no option but to use the older chemistries yeah. mm. that are in fact perhaps worse. Um, so it's it's this comparative nature, as you say, that's really important. And what I'm trying to do with the platform is test a series of different ones so that we can maybe say, it's not just all doom and gloom, don't use these three that we can see have clear sublethal mm. effects and are likely to be detrimental. These four doesn't seem to do anything. Mm. Crack on. We need to have so, give farmers options. I think yeah. that's what the key to it. And is. that's a really interesting point. Then that neonics is a is a broad class of many many chemicals. Um, and seven. Seven. And yeah, they each affect bees differently. Even to the point where some there is a neonic that is actually applied to beehives, right, to take care of mites. Because it's has such a low yeah. toxicity to bees. Yes, so that that's the thing is they're all kind of tarred now with the yeah. same brush. Right. Whereas there's three of them which are I've practiced the names. Don't worry, imidacloprid, yeah, thiamethoxam, and clothionidin are the three that are now banned for complete outdoor use um, in the EU. But okay. again, very widely used in the mm. rest of the world still. And they're the three kind of main culprits when it comes to these sublethal effects. They're where we're really seeing effects on reproduction, navigation, uh, food intake, foraging, all sorts of things. Um, so if we can say don't use those three, I'm not arguing with that ban at all. I think that was the right move. But we're now seeing if you look up in kind of these pesticide registries, although the others are not banned, there's not really anything registered for use with them because I think there's such negative press against them. Some of it is also mm. they're not that effective and maybe that's mm. why they're not having the negative effects on the bees is they're not having negative effects on aphids either. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of this complex situation where we've got media maybe uh, opinion is taking over evidence and science and that's what i'm really trying to do with this is to be the middleman which is hot woman middle woman um which is difficult in this field where i think it's quite a lot of polar opposites where you're a bee lover or you're a pesticide lover mm. and no one's in the middle well this mm. is the, this is i think the where this whole argument with um neos near uh, near I know. This, I think, is where the whole argument with neonics began a few years back. Because yeah. I remember there was, this, there was a sudden outcry of, be, all our bees are going to die. Yes. We're going to have no food. Everything's going to die. We're going to yeah. die. The whole world's going to die yes. because we're losing the bees. And I think you, you sort of touched on before that, obviously, a lot of the research into this has been done on the honeybees. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like you said, um, bumblebees and solitary bees are where the majority of this sort of important pollinators pollination in inverted commas yeah. is sort of happening. Can I just say, and, and that's so, the, the kind of, so the idea that my, I, I'm, I don't really care about honeybees because they're, a, they're managed. managed. Yeah. yeah, there exactly. is, there is a very quali qualified, capable person to replace them looking, looking after yeah. honeybee hives. Yeah. Whereas wild pollinators are what we call the kind of bumblebees and the 
solitary bees. Yes. We, yeah. we know nothing about them and there's no one there to count them or check their yeah. reproduction And or it's anything. very hard to do that. And there's, that's why there's this massive evidence gap there, effectively. We know quite a lot about honeybees, um, but we've seen for some, amidocloprid, for example, one of the neonics, we see that honeybees can metabolize it at a certain time point, uh, but bumblebees can metabolize it a bit faster. But you also see the opposite. You And we have no idea for the solitary bees. There's a lot of solitary bees that we it could be completely harming them or not. Mm. But it's very, very difficult to monitor. But as you say, they're, they're very important for mainly um, like fruit and vegetable variety crops. So honeybees are really good for oilseed rape, kind of big, big, big swathes of so crop. the yellow flowers you see in the The yellow fields. flowers you see. Um, but it's really important to have bee diversity for your crop diversity because if we... Apples, did, courgettes. Yeah, all the, these kind of fruity, veggie, beans. exciting things. Beans, bumblebees love the beans. Any legumes, they're all about. Um, I like but beans. You like beans as baked well. Baked beans are nice. I mean, I don't know what pollinates a baked bean. I don't even know what bean a baked bean is, to be honest. We, we need a diversity mm. of wild pollinators. Yes. And so bumblebees, on a side note of how cool bumblebees are, they do this kind of pollination that honeybees can't do. So they vibrate their butts real fast. And we call this buzz pollination because it sounds better than butt pollination. <laughs> you can see some great videos of this happening in slow motion. Yes, I think, on the internet. really cool really? ones. And this what means- is your search history? <laughs> We've searched this before. Bumblebees twerk. Bumblebees twerk. <laughs> they do twerk. Yeah, so they can vibrate real fast. Um, and that's vibrating their flight muscles effectively. And this means that they can fire out hidden pollen in some flowers that have like these hidden pollen tubes. They're hidden anthers. Um, and honeybees can't do that. And things like tomatoes have those, I believe, aubergines, lots of the salonsae, if you say that, mm. salonsae, family, tomatoes Salonese. and things. Yeah, so, you're yeah, yeah, right. That sounded yeah. better. Um, lots of that family, um, which couldn't be, and some solitary bees can do it as well, and they couldn't be pollinated by honeybees. So it's not just that we can be like, oh, it doesn't matter if the wild bees disappear, we We've can manage honeybees. Oh, right. Because it would very much look like eating much more boring food. And without bees at mm. all, you'd just be living off rice and bread, basically. So wheat. Oh no, yeah, yeah bread, yeah, bread, bread, yeah, uh, crackers, uh, cereal. Yeah, yeah. No, you I wouldn't. Like, you wouldn't right, die. You just. Have I mean, very, you can fortify it, but it would be boring. Dying. Yeah. So when people say we'd starve without bees, that's not per se true. But we'd be darn bored. But you wouldn't have a very varied diet. There'd be no and that could be bad for health in lots of other ways, right? But if you think about fortification that exists now, you can mm. technically live off bread, apparently, and it's fortified yeah. with so many things you'd survive. But do you want to, <laughs> do Gary? You That's the no. question. I'd like to do a little shout out for the for the flies here, because I'm yep. hashtag team fly, and say so there are lots of different groups and families and species of flies that are very important pollinators mm-hmm. as well. Mm. And though I think it's almost unanimously agreed that the bumblebee is probably one of the best, almost yeah. efficient pollinators in Britain, some species of fly like um, blue bottles, you know, that eat dead bodies mm-hmm. and things, are incredibly, yeah, incredibly very good, um, yeah, good yeah. pollinators. For a lot of our vegetables, courgettes, broccolis, mm-hmm. things like that. And they're much better pollinators than everyone's favourite butterflies. Like butterflies are fairly useless pollinators, not, but they're not to slag them off. They are, they're very pretty. They do pollinate, but things like flies are far better pollinators. And they're cooler as well. And they're cooler. To me, this idea of understanding how pesticides impact wild pollinators seems really important. But from what I understand, it seems like there isn't that much research into this. Why do you? Why? Why are you the only one who cares? I'm very much not the only one caring about this. Is the answer to that? It's just traditionally the honeybee as the one that is economically important. So because we get a foodstuff from it, we are making money on it. 
was the bee of most interest when this started to be observed that there were subletal effects or there could be something wrong. Economically is always sadly what gets looked at first um, because it would be most devastating to honey production. Because they have the most sort of immediate effect, immediate knock-on effect to our economy, like you say. Yeah. Yes. So it's what's going to affect our actual food stock, our food market. But then if you think of pollinators in the wider sense, that's all affecting our food market. Um, so we are looking at it more, but it's like we said anything that's managed is easier to look at. You can see the immediate effects of what you do to a honeybee hive. And the reason it's becoming more popular now to look at bumblebees is partially because we can now, we can manage bumblebees and they are sold commercially for pollination in glass houses. So I buy in research hives of bumblebees that I can study. Um, but that's not really done on solitary bees. There's research starting to look at how you uh, see if you can manage solitary bees. But if they don't live in a hive, and they're solitary by definition. They're quite hard to grow up in a lab, to rear in a lab. Um, but they started to look at Osmia bicornis, which is a red mason bee, which is becoming kind of a model species for the solitary bee. But there's definitely more, there's increasing research in this area. Like it's really, really hot right now is looking at this wild bee focus because we just don't know in a lot of cases. And we cannot say that because it happens in one species, this is how it happened in all these other 249 in the UK, mm. let alone the rest of the world and let alone where they're still using different applications than we're using. So there's still a lot to be done. Mm. So in the last part of our podcasts, uh, we always like to play a little game called, um, we've not really got a name for it. It's called A Thousand Words or something like that. The Thing Explainer, it has got a name. There um, we go. <laughs> so in front of you is a piece of paper with two pieces of paper with okay. the thousand most commonly used English words. Wow. We've each got the same piece of paper. The goal is you, you have some time, so you don't rush, we'll just cut the gap. Um, you have a bit of time and- You have no time. I don't know what you have no do, time. probably. You have to go through and just write- one sentence or two based using only those words that describe the work that you do. And we will attempt, having listened to you, we will attempt to describe your work in our own words to see if we've truly understood it. As many words as I want. You can use as many of these words as yeah. you want. Yeah, but yeah. realistically, Not remember, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. describe my work. Yeah. Yeah. I like that the words ball and bag are right next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, what is your thousand word thing explainer sentence about your work? Does death water cause bees to think, walk, eat odd? <laughs> think, walk, eat odd. <laughs> I like it's like it. an Ariana like Grande song. I see it. I, I like, like it. it. <laughs> think, walk, eat odd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we could break it down. <laughs> That's good. Alex? Save the bee by checking bad water is safe. Oh, That's nice. That's optimistic. <laughs> I like that. I've got bees are cold because we don't have cool on there. Um, so bees are cold. How to look after them and not kill them. Oh, that's that's also yeah. good advice. Hashtag Very bees good. are cold. <laughs> Ice cold. <laughs> Gary. Uh, I got study bee ability to learn after they eat plant protection products in amounts of parts per billion. That's a, okay, that's a, that's yeah, a yeah. twister. That's I not. know. And there is all on there. As it just keeps going. <laughs> That is not. No, lies. Actually, I use They're all on there. So. They're all like, except the word B is not the word B-E-E. B, -E -E. it it's the word B-E. Why is billion on there? And Ex I know, is... because Carl Sagan did it, didn't he? Because billions everything is based on the economy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> billions and billions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. 
I think you win. Thank you. I think you definitely win. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Who wins the bees versus flies debate? And that's it from that's the Science of <laughs> And that's it from the Science of Feeding the World podcast today with me, Gary Frin. I'm Hannah McGrath. I'm Alex Dye. I'm Laura James. Thank you, Laura. And we'll see you next time. Woo! Bye! <laughs> oh, did we just buy it? Bye! Thanks for listening to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We would like it very much if you would like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in touch, you can get us on Twitter at SFDW podcast. Or if you just search for the Science of Feeding the World on Instagram or Facebook, you'll get us there as well.